few months ago, I was at a parish in New Orleans, and I gave a homily on today's gospel. So naturally, after having nine masses, two major feast days this week, and a funeral in Macomb, I was incredibly tempted to just print that homily out and read it to you. And then I remembered that I post all my homilies online. And sure enough, when I looked it up, that particular homily was one of the top play tracks on my SoundCloud account. So suffice it to say, there was no easy out for me this evening. However, I would like to read the quote that I gave as the introduction to that homily, as it still summarizes well the meaning of today's gospel. From Monsignor Ronald Knox, he says, Human love, human beauty, are only the shadow, not the substance. They could not move our nature so deeply if they had not in them something of the divine, and yet so imperfect, so fugitive, so unsatisfying. They can only be shadows. Love is a word that is thrown around quite a bit today. In many ways, the meaning of the term love is changing. While on one hand, I can love my family, on the other hand, I can also love banana pudding. But I don't necessarily love them the same way. And the Greeks figured this out years ago, and so they came up with three separate words for love. Now, the word our Lord uses this evening is agape seis. It's the imperative word, imperative form of the word agape, to love with the highest form of charity, to love to the point of death. And Christ uses that word twice tonight, both in the greatest commandment and in the second. You shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor. It's important that we notice this connection because it also gives insight into how we are to interpret these two precepts. The first thing we should notice is that these two separate lines are not found together in the Old Testament. They're taken from different places. We heard the first line in the reading from Deuteronomy. Moses entrusts this commandment to the chosen people in order to prepare them to inherit the promised land. And it is a commandment which becomes central to Jewish practice, even today. And the second line is taken from Leviticus, where Moses records in the law that men are not to hold grudges, but instead to love each other as they love themselves. But Christ the Lord binds these two commandments together as a single precept, and using a single term for love to express one incredible reality— that the love which we are to show toward God must also be shown toward one another. Not because our neighbor is equal to God, not even because that is how God loves our neighbor, but because there is only one undifferentiated form of love, the love of God. The love we have for another is meant to flow from our love of God. That is its only source. And thus we can return to the quote that I shared with you earlier. Human love, human beauty are only the shadow, not the substance. They could not move our nature so deeply if they had not in them something of the divine. And yet so imperfect, so fugitive, so unsatisfying, they can only be shadows. Now the expressions of our love of God and the love of neighbor will sometime have different forms. We express our love of God through adoration and reverence through fitting worship. 
We express our love of neighbor by mimicking God's love toward us. And God's love has immense qualities. It is always forgiving, constant, passionate, generous, and irrevocable. It is so beyond our comprehension because it is different in every way from the manner in which the world loves. The world sees crimes against love and makes them unforgivable. For a lover would surely never do anything like that to the beloved, and thus it must not be loved. The world demands reciprocity, not generosity, and thus the lover should only be expected to give if the love is returned. The world sees trouble and suffering and demands that love must have a reasonable limit and so can be reasonably withdrawn. And this is why the world cannot understand why the church, for example, would desire to protect the dignity of murderers, fighting for them to be spared from execution, as happened in Tennessee this past weekend. To the world, their crime has made them unlovable, and therefore they must be denied mercy. But this is not the love of God. God's love seems unreasonable to us. It knows no bounds never ceases to express itself. It is God's love that sustains the murderer's very breath. If there is any evidence of the contrary nature of worldly love, it is in marriage. In the eyes of the world, marital love is also safely limited. That's a really odd thing to say, though, considering the vows that a couple make to each other on their wedding day. The words the couple say to one another are supernatural, They don't sound like the reality of marriage as given to us by the world. I take you to be my spouse, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. There's no limiting term in those words. If couples truly reflected on them, they should strike enough fear that you would think about them before you said them. From this day forward, until death do us part, irrevocable, indissoluble, from the moment I say these words until the day I die, irrevocable love. That is not worldly love, but divine, supernatural. And sure, perhaps we can say, oh, but the church has annulments. I can get one of those. Yes, the church does understand the bitter reality of ordinary life may come with some extenuating circumstances. But if an annulment is just a get-out-of-jail-free card, then why do we have vows at all? If there is a limit, a normal limit, a limit we can all agree upon, then what is the purpose of marriage? The ceremony, the vows, the dress, the invitations, why do it at all? And the truth is, that's partly what the world is saying to us right now. The world is seeing the limits that we put on marital love, and so rather than siding with the church, and calling calling married couples to the irrevocable love of God, the world just puts a cork in it. Call it a day. There's no need for that anymore. For better, for worse, what could that mean? Burnt meal, bad vacation, a fight over paint colors, an affair. Where is the limit to that vow? Where is the limit to God's love? To the world, it may seem foolish, crazy even, to love someone without limits. But that is the love of God. The love of a God who knew that Judas would betray him and yet chose him as a close friend. 
made himself vulnerable enough that he could even be betrayed. The love of a God who, knowing Peter, denied him not once but three times, granted him the dignity of his greatest apostle and the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Humans don't love like this, at least not naturally. And this is why we have a sacrament of marriage. Men and women are capable of loving one another passionately on their own. But with the assistance of this sacrament, their love is transformed, made supernatural. And this is a grace that must be begged from God daily. There is one grace to love in this divine way, and another grace to bear patiently with the sufferings that such love entails. G.K. Chesterton said, love is not blind. That is the last thing it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. For our love to be bound means that it is committed to the other, both committed to God and committed in a very real way to our neighbor. In the case of marriage, this means that there is a commitment to not let that love be sacrificed for any reason. There can be a fear of the unknown when someone gets married or considers getting married. There's a fear of the unknown when someone goes to seminary or even something as simple as a new job. What can I expect to face? What lies ahead of me? Will I be able to handle if I make this decision? To us, it seems blind. Then add love. Love looks the unknown in the face and stays bound, committed. The choice is not made because of the unknown, but because of the commitment to love. If we truly love one another with the same love of God, then that means that all those explanatory phrases in Christ's words have to be taken into account. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now turn that love towards the other, towards the spouse. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Nothing can stop that. No matter what trouble you may face, no matter how many falls you may have, nothing can quench that sort of love. And this is why marriage is such an exalted vocation in the church. A vocation so precious that the church never ceases to protect it. Marriage is so important to the church that she knows if any aspect of it were to be sacrificed, it would be worthless. Christian marriage is valuable because it is the love of God, the most perfect expression of God's love for humanity on earth. And that love was made incarnate not in flowers and butterflies, but in blood and nails. Marriage is an adventure, says G.K. Chesterton. An adventure like going to war. Or again, he says, I have known many happy marriages, but never a compatible one. The whole aim of marriage is to fight through and survive the instant when incompatibility becomes unquestionable. We must beg God for this grace. Beg him to love as he loves. To love not with shadows, but in substance. <laughs>